awesome, awesome. So how many recording the game? Okay, here's the rule. If you check your score or anything before you leave this campus, you have to keep that to yourself. All right, you can't. I, last year, man, I remember like somebody in the comments was like, hey, we're winning by seven. And I'm like, I thought they were going to die on the spot. I'm like, you don't, you don't, it's a, it's a zero zone here, all right? So it's going to be good. Looking forward, it's going to be awesome. So uh, let's get underway with what we got here. Open up to the book of First Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to put you in First Timothy chapter 3. We're going to backtrack just a little bit, and then we're going to move forward. Now, as you're on your way there, it is interesting to me how infatuated we are as a people with the idea of how. How? We love to learn how. We love to know how. We want to know how. I mean, we love how. We want to know how to be successful. We want to know how to be more educated. We want to know how to fix a car. We want to know how to do any number of things. In fact, that's why we love search engines like Bing, all right? Because we can go to Bing and we can say, I want to know how to train a dragon. And we can learn. How to train a dragon, right? We can learn any number of hows. And as Americans, as we continue to become more busy, more uh, kind of spread thin, what we find is that we are constantly fixated on just tell me how to get it done. Tell me how to finish the task. Tell me how to accomplish whatever said goal I have. And how isn't a bad thing. But here's what I'm realizing is happening increasingly. We are so fixated on how, so we can get this how done, so we can move to the next how, that what we are not creating space for is the question, why? Right? Because we just want to know, how do I do this? How do I do that? How is it accomplished? But what we're not doing is slowing down and, and, and really asking the deeper question at times of saying, well, why do I want to do X? Why do I really need to know how? See, how is the outplay of practice. Why is the principle that starts off why I want to then know how? So, for example, if we look at capitalism, before we ask, how do you create capitalism, we should ask the question, well, why do we want to do that in the first place? Because there can be a very bad reason or there can be a good reason, depending on the why. Same with democracy, same with just a household chore. It doesn't matter what it is. If we don't learn the why, then in time, the how dominates everything, and it can dominate without direction, without principle, without rules, right? This is why the why matters. Now, the why goes by a lot of different labels. It might be known as theory or ideology. But one of the favorite words to describe the why is doctrine. And it's used in all sorts of disciplines. It's the doctrine of war. You can even have economic, uh, economic doctrine or theory. I mean, these are all the ways that we describe getting to the root of the why because the why is the principle right the why grounds the how the why says this is the ultimate agenda the ultimate goal the ultimate purpose the ultimate principle and we want to hold the principle so that we make sure the how stays on track because over the course of time if we lose the why the how begins to just migrate to places on its own and we lose why we ever began what we began in the first place I think this is super critical to Christianity. 
And, and I, I think it's super critical to Christianity in the 21st century in our culture where even we as the church can get so fixated on the, 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 the how that we lose sight of why we do what we do. Why it matters to stay true to our principles, true to our theology, true to our ideals. Because, see, here's the deal. Doctrine in Christianity, the why, theology, the motivation, that shapes the Christian life. And if we lose the theology, we lose the doctrine, we lose the why, then pretty soon the Christian life begins to, to migrate in all sorts of directions and go to all sorts of places it was never intended to go. It will eventually affect our worship. It will eventually affect our ability to be an example. It will affect the health of the church at large. And so Paul knows this. And so as Paul writes to this young pastor named Timothy, he's wanting Timothy to realize that the why, it matters. And only when you have a healthy why, only when you have a biblical why, only when you have a theologically grounded why, will you have a church that knows how to do what honors God, and not just how to do whatever fills up the time. And so in chapter 3, verse 14... Paul writes about the church, right? And he says, if I delay in coming to you, Timothy, I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so he says that at the end of a very long series of statements where he tells the church, here's how you pray. He tells the church, here's how you reach. He tells the church, here's how you worship. He says, men, you worship this way. Women, you worship this way. Elders, you lead this way. Deacons, you lead that way. Why? Because the church is the household of God and it is the pillar and buttress of the truth. He says, that's why it matters. It's that serious. It's that important. Here's what you have to understand. When Paul says that, he's got a number of things in his heart and mind as he iterates this, this concept. The first is that the church, you ready? It's really not about us. Right? As we gather here this morning, a lot of times we go to church and we go, church is good for me, I like church, I want to go to church, I think it's healthy, it's a proper regiment. But ultimately, the church is not about us. The church is about and it's for Jesus. And so this idea that we have to hold to the truth matters because it's about Jesus, it's not about us. It's not about us reshaping truth, it's not about us saying, I like this and don't like that, so we're going to get rid of what I don't like and keep what I do like. They say, no, no, it's all about Jesus. It's all for Jesus. That matters. The other thing Paul is saying here is that the church is an outpost for the truth in a world that is filled with lies. See, one of the things I love about the Bible is it's very blunt. See, we live in a time where we feel like everybody has opinions. You know, the Bible really doesn't talk in terms of opinions. It talks about truth and it talks about error. It talks about things that are biblically right and things that are contrary to Scripture. And, and, and so Paul is clear that the world is filled with all sorts of lies that corrupt hearts and corrupt souls and rob people of a relationship with God. And so he says the church's role is to guard, defend, uphold, celebrate the truth. Not merely what we like or what we want to hear, but really what God has said. And so he says, man, the church exists for that purpose. In fact, he says the church is built on and upholds this code, this standard, this book, is what we are all about. 
Now, now this book goes deeper. It, it's a book that represents the God that we want to know. We don't want to worship the book. We want to worship our God, but we want to defend, protect, uphold, teach, live this book. See, God is our why. The book is our how. But in the book, we see the why as well. So we want to make sure that as a church, this matters to us. This is why you're going to see so often, I'm bringing this book out. It's why so often I want to preach this book. I don't want to come up here and just teach a bunch of opinions and make us all feel happy, warm, fuzzy, and good. I want us to make sure that we know this book, even the parts we don't like, even the parts that challenge us. Because the church's role is not simply to make people feel good. It is to buttress, uphold the truth. This is Paul's heart. This is what he knows. And so he writes to this young pastor to encourage him in these ways. Now, why is this important? Well, because there's always going to be a lie that wants to counter the truth. And that's where he goes into chapter 4. He says, the church is the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. But then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. Right? So what Paul has just said about a healthy church and a biblical church has a reason, has a why to it. And that is that there's going to come a time where people say, I don't like the Bible. I don't like truth. I don't like what God says. Now, when it says latter days, we have a tendency to think in times. When Paul writes that, the latter days started in his day. The latter days have been the last 2,000 years. But what happens in these latter days is every iteration of ideas that challenge God's word, they, they just become faster and faster and faster and more diversified, right? So uh, we had the Enlightenment movement, which led to the Modernist movement, which led to the Postmodernist movement. And each one of those iterations further excels at trying to water down, challenge, or undermine the truth. To where even what you have today in our latter days is not just competing ideas, but everybody has an idea. Everybody has their own version of truth. Everybody just kind of mixes and matches and blends it together and says, this is what I believe and that's what you believe. And there's millions of different ideas all floating in our culture of us just blending up ideas and calling it truth. So in the latter days, this is going to happen. And in the latter days, it's going to challenge the church, right? In fact, that's why he says... The Spirit expressly says, In the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. I mean, Paul opens up just both guns, man. Boom! Right? Because he doesn't just say that these are wrong, that these are false, that these are phony. He says these are demonic doctrines that we begin to embrace. And notice the target it's those who depart from the faith. You're the target. I'm the target of these demonic doctrines. Because the thing that Satan loves to do is he loves to do two things. He either wants to tempt us to sin, which we all know, or he wants to tempt us to err. Right? And, and, and so that's where these demonic doctrines come into play. Because he, he might look and say, you know what, man, they have real fortitude. They have self-discipline. You know what, I'm not going to get them on the moral front, but I can get them on the why. I can get them on the doctrine front. I can get them on the truth front. I can get them to believe all sorts of other ideas and blend them together into their idea instead of God's big idea. And so he loves to do that. That's his big 
MO. And see, what we can have a tendency to do is to look around at our world and see uh, ideas or ideologies or spiritualities or religions or whatever, and we'll say, well, they're just wrong in comparison to what I believe. Paul would say, no, they're demonic. It's not just human beings coming up with something and they're inaccurate. It's demons spinning these wonderfully elaborate ideas and implanting them and embedding them in our world so that we start to go, oh, there, maybe there is something to it. Maybe there is. See, don't think of these as pure human creations, the different ideas. In fact, I grew up in a small town in central Arizona called Sedona. Right? And some of you have been to Sedona, have heard of Sedona, recently traveled through Sedona. Uh, great town, very new age. Like, very new age. Some people are like, oh, that's what's the matter with Matt. All right, so, um, yeah, so I grew up in Sedona. And a and, uh, beautiful place, but very new age. And some people will look at the new age and say, oh, it's just, it's just false, it's phony, it's just feel-good spirituality. I've watched it firsthand. It's profoundly powerful and real profoundly. I had a gal I went to, to high school with. She was driving to school one morning and she flipped her Jeep and was ejected from the Jeep. And so, I mean, she was torn up pretty bad. And her dad was about five minutes behind her. Her dad was a very wealthy new age channeler. So he would channel spirits in the New Age movement. And so he pulls over, sees his daughter. We had stopped. We were behind her when she flipped. And so we were freaked out as students because she was just really badly hurt. And he comes up and he just puts his, his hand on her forehead and begins to chant this thing. And then suddenly all her pain goes away. She's talking normal. She's like, thank you, Dad. I feel good now. I feel good now. And all of her pain had left her until the paramedics had got there. And as a, a student, you're like, uh, that, that's freaking me out, man. That is freaking me out. So when somebody says, oh, it's a bunch of bunk, I'm like, no, 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 it's demonic. It's not, it's not fake. It's false. And there's a difference between fake and false. Fake is fake, all right? Fake is, a, is illusion. False is power that is demonic. Right? And so there is powerful demonic activity. Paul knows this, and so he's warning this young pastor. He says, man, you've got to watch out for demonic doctrines that seek to take people of the faith and divert them. The question then becomes, well, what are these demonic doctrines? Is it a Ouija board? Is it Dungeons and Dragons? Is it Harry Potter? You know, like, what, what are the demonic things that we have to worry about? Well, Paul's going to do us a favor, and he's going to walk right into that. And what he's going to share with us is that the most prevalent thing that demons want to bring about is a simple undermining of the authority of the Word of God. That's all they really want to do. And they're going to do it in one of two ways in this text. One form is to say, you know what? Um, yeah, God has given you the Bible, but if you just subtract some stuff from it, your life's going to go better. Right? Subtraction is one form of demonic doctrine. The other form of demonic doctrine, addition. Addition. Just add more to the Bible. See, remember we learned in the Satan sermon series that Satan loves extremes? Here's his extremes with the Bible, right? So what he means by subtract, I don't mean literally like you might get in there with a knife and you might start cutting out verses or pages or books, but what it is is where you affirm the Bible says that, but I don't plan to do that. That's subtraction. 
I know what it calls me to, but I excuse its calling because, again, I have other things I want to do. It's not that important to me. I'm saved by grace. Grace excuses my responsibility to that. Man, Satan wants us to little by little whittle down the value, the sufficiency, the authority of the Word of God in our life. So a doctrine of demons is going to simply be just start subtracting little by little by little and doing your own thing. That's the subtraction. The addition is on the other side where people say, you know what, God wrote the Bible, but he didn't write enough, so I'm going to write some new rules to give to everybody else to hold them to so that they will do what they need to do. That's legalism. And legalism is just as sinister as the subtraction, as the liberalizing. In fact, they're both liberal ideas because what they're both saying at their core is the Bible is not enough. It doesn't deal with the complexities of modern life, so I override some of these things. Or it doesn't tell people what to do enough, and so I'm going to add some new stuff to it. Now, the book of Revelation says, don't add, don't take away, because that's bad. But we sometimes do. Maybe not as brazenly or as boldly as literally adding books to the Bible or cutting books of the Bible out. But in this practical sort of way, what Satan wants us to do, start giving in to too much license or too much legalism instead of Christ-centeredness. And so Paul knows this, and so he's going to speak to both of those, right? So he deals with the first group, the demonic subtractors, right? So he says, man, there's these doctrines of demons, these deceitful spirits, they come in, and what do they teach? First, verse 2, they teach through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, right? The insincerity of liars whose conscience is seared. I mean, think about searing, right? I mean, it's this cauterizing of this internal compass that God has given to everybody where they lie so much, they sin so much, they go down this road so much that pretty soon they don't feel bad about their deception. They don't feel bad about their sin. They are seared in conscience. See, that is something that can happen to us as Christians in the church. As a pastor for a long time, I've seen it. I was dealing with a friend of mine one time where it was clear that his wife was beginning to take on a seared conscience where God had said, here's how you should be married and this should be your relationship and this is what you should protect against. And she wasn't wanting to stay within that. She started fiddling around and flirting with things that she shouldn't. And man, her conscience began to get harder and harder and harder. And one of the crazy things about people when their conscience becomes seared is that they will look right at you, they will lie to your face and believe their own lie. They will believe their own lie. Or they will be so seared, they will start to insult you like you're the bad person for calling them out when they in fact are the ones that are doing something bad. So in a case with my friend, he had found out that his wife was engaged in kind of this just online relationship with a guy, but pictures were going back and forth and everything else, and he confronted her and said, uh, I, I, I think you're doing this. And she was just irate. I'm not. How dare you judge me? You've got this stuff in your life. Da, da, da. And she was after him, right? Just indignant. I would never. And he's like, oh, well, here's the history. And it was like, oh shift gears but but it was it was a kind of an encapsulation of of where her life was going right that she was just searing the conscience she wasn't seeing the danger she wasn't seeing the risk she wasn't seeing the crazy that was coming out of she wasn't seeing that she was wrong even 
after kind of being called out and caught, there was a certain self-defense of, well, you know, you're not around and you don't do this and you don't do that and you're not like these other guys. And it wasn't even like an ownership because it was a conscience seared. That's the risk of searing the conscience. And so that's the risk of saying, I'm just going to subtract some things in the Bible. You, you, you even see it in culture sometimes where people go really, really far and they go so far that they are defensive when they should just be repentant. Carlos Danger, right? Like, you know, honestly, like Anthony Weiner, I remember watching these interactions after everything had come out. And, 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 and the second iteration of things. And, and he literally was offended at people that they were troubled by him. Because he was seared. He just didn't see the big deal. What's the problem? It's just my life. Why are you judging me? You have no room to judge. Well, the problem is when your GPS gets fried internally and spiritually and conscience-wise, you're not going to see up from down. Right? It, it's just seared. I, I, I'm, I don't know about you. I just know I've seen this a lot of times where people go down these roads of sin and their sin just blinds. Just blinds. And the enemy loves that because, again, they start feeling like as soon as you want to hold them accountable, you're the Pharisee. Right? You're the legalist. When you say, you know what, um, dude, uh, affair? Not, not right. Well, how dare you judge me? Have you ever looked at a woman? Yeah, but I haven't slept with her. All right? So, like, don't try to push this off instead of owning it. But sometimes sin, sin blinds. Satan loves that one, right? He loves the subtraction. And I have no doubt, some of us right now, as we're kind of listening and thinking, we know that we're, we're flirting with that, we're playing with that, we're trying to say it's just private, it's never going to get loose, it's just playful, it's not a big deal, I've got it under control, it's not going to go far. Yeah, that's what the enemy always wants us to believe. Always. He wants us to think we control where the line is. We, we don't. We really don't. We just don't control the line. When it comes to a willful, conscious willingness to sin, um, we're just getting on a roller coaster where gravity is going to have its way. Unless we go, man, I repent, I stop, forgive me. Forgive me. I've just never seen anybody really have control over sin. It takes control of you. Paul knows this. So he says, listen, do yourself a favor, man. Run from the doctrine of demons that does this. I've seen it firsthand with people really, really close to me. I've seen it with a man who was an elder in a church and had a good marriage and decided one day, well, something in my marriage just isn't making me happy. And so that elder ended up with another woman who was in a Bible study and then they had a relationship and he divorced the other lady and they eventually married and now they're divorced and he is a guy in the new age. Right? It was just this progression. This was a Bible-believing elder. Now he's a New Age single guy uh, blown through three marriages. How does that happen? It happens because you believe a doctrine of demons that says you're in control of your own sin. Don't worry about it. It won't take you far. And it does. It does. So Paul warns, man, don't give into that doctrine of demons. But that's not the only doctrine of demons. He loves extremes, right? So if he doesn't get you with the subtraction, he wants to get you with the addition. If he doesn't get you with the license, he wants to get you with the legalism. And so that's the next thing. If it isn't those who have a seared conscience, it's those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. That's a big jump. 
right? It's from do whatever you want to suddenly don't be married and don't eat certain foods. Imagine the advertisement for that church, right? Hey, welcome to Celibate Vegetarian Church where everybody is hungry and lonely, you know? Like, like how does that even market? How do you push that church, right? But that's the church that's getting pushed in this context. And you go, well, man, how is that demonic? I mean, how do you make just say no demonic, right? Because that's part of our problem. We go, demons, they're snarly and horns and mean and cruel and just love perverted things. They also love really pure things. They love really pure things. A purity that drives legalism. A purity that drives self-reliance and self-righteousness and judgmental spirit. Oh, they love that purity. And so they will push that doctrine as well, right? And so that's what they begin to do here. Now, drill this down. I mean, you might look and go, marriage and sex, or marriage and, and, and food, how does that, I mean, how can you exploit that? Okay, marriage, food, uh, tap into our two strongest uh, appetites, right? Hunger, sexuality, right? So these have pretty deep roots when you think about it. I mean, on the surface, you might be like, Marriage and food, I don't get it until you get to the appetites. Sex and hunger. Then you go back into Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, what does God say? First commandment, first commandment, be fruitful and multiply. The very first commandment is sex. It's the very first commandment, right? And so God made all of this, it was very, very good. And he says, first commandment, have sex. Now, he gives a context of that. Have sex within marriage. It's only with your spouse. That's it. It's first commandment. Then you get to chapter two. Chapter one, sex. Right? God gives it. Chapter two, hey, you can eat anything in this garden. Any tree, any fruit, just not that one tree. So you can have all the sex that you want with one spouse. You can eat any fruit you want but that one tree. Lots of permission. Very limited uh, kind of control or saying no. And then in Genesis 3, the enemy comes in, begins to twist everything up, right? And what he does in the aftermath of the rebellion of Eden is that he encourages those two things in wrong ways or he tries to forbid them in right ways. He encourages them in wrong ways or he tries to forbid them in the right ways. So let's break that down a little bit more. We'll look at the first one, right? We're going to look at uh, the issue of marriage, right? Forbidding marriage. Why is that bad? Because sex is a part of marriage. It's not that Satan is saying, hey, you know what? Let's not let them marry because they're going to be happy. He knows let them marry, they may be really angry. But um, let them marry, but then tell them not to have sex. That'll make them doubly angry, all right? So that's sort of the plan, right? He's like, that would be masterful. And so he starts to teach people, you know what? You don't want to be married because sex is impure. Now what's crazy about that is that that has been a view throughout the history of the church for a very long time. I mean, it was amazing. You look at the early church fathers and their attitude on sex in marriage. And they had a very negative view, right? For a long period of time. Where it was like, well, all right, if you have to do it, fine, pagan. You know, like, like whatever. I guess it's good for procreation. Some of the early church fathers even actually said the extinction of the human race would be a better option than procreation and marriage. That was early church, like Tertullian and those guys. I mean, they, they had weird ideas, right? 
at the Council of Trent. So 1600s, right? This is after Martin Luther and the Catholic Church have their fight. Uh, At the Council of Trent, they come together, and one of the decisions made was how singleness is more godly than being married because marriage has sex in it. I understand now why Luther broke away. Like, I get it. You know what I mean? He's like, I'm out, Reformation. She's hot. You know, so I'm marrying her, all right? You go that way, I'm going this way. So I could get it. Matter of fact, for the longest time, that was the view until, you ready? This is going to blow your mind. You know who blew it all open and said, sex and marriage is awesome? The Puritans. (laughs) No lie. Go back and read the Puritans. There they are in New England, in the colonies. It's cold. They want to stay warm. And they realized this and marriage is good, all right? And so they started writing on it. They started pushing it. In fact, some of their city legislation was things like a woman could actually seek damages from her husband if he did not render sexual favors to her. I didn't make this up. That was a Puritan law. Everybody thinks, oh, the Puritans were so stuffy and killjoys. But they were freaky, all right? So... (laughs) They, uh, they were on that. They were. And it changed some of the attitudes in the church on sexuality, but not fully. Think about it still today. I mean, just you start to walk through it a little bit. How we'll say to our daughters, for example, because I have two daughters, and we'll say, um, you know, you want to save your purity for marriage? As though somehow on your wedding night that purity ends. Isn't that weird? I mean, the way we say, save your purity for marriage. And then what? Then you just have a different facet of purity. That's really all you have. But, but it's interesting. Ellen and I have done a lot of premarital counseling, postmarital counseling, and how often inside the marriage covenant, even though Hebrew says the marriage bed is honorable, um, how many couples sometimes feel like it's not. The wife feels like, you know, uh, growing up I was told, save it, save it, save it, save it, save it. It's precious. To, to not save it is bad. And then I get married and I can't shift gears. I feel like somehow it's less pure. Or, or men that feel like if they were to ask certain things of their wife in their Christian marriage, like, oh, she's going to see me as a pervert now, as though suddenly it's a bad thing. Right? And, and so this is a strangely problematic issue still for the church where we don't see that it is differently pure. Where we give some kind of spiritual value that says to not do it makes you more godly than to do it within your marriage. This is just sort of the hurdle. Uh, I, you know, even within the church, how much time we spend telling our kids, uh, Wait and save, wait and save, wait and save, wait and save. But we don't spend the same amount of time unpacking how beautiful, amazing it is, how they need to know much about it, how we need to talk often about it so it isn't like some foreign environment when they enter into their marriages. Right? Think about like Song of Solomon was awesome. It celebrated it. You got the, the, the bride sharing with the younger women all about it. All about it. I mean, they're not even married yet. She's like, oh, guess what I'm going to do later? Inside and outside, his house, my house, my mom's house. Right, like, it's all in Song of Solomon, man. I didn't write it. I'm just the mailman, right? So, celebration. And that culture celebrated it. Celebrated on the wedding night, like Uncle Cy was by the tent, listening. Yep, it's done. You know, like, that's, that's what they did in their culture. And they told the whole village, right? 
We in the church were like, gotta keep it quiet. Just say no and don't, done. And I go, no and don't, but let me tell you about how great it's going to be. Right? And this needs to be a regular conversation with our homes. In the Boswell home, this is not an exaggeration. If you asked any of my kids, they'd be like, oh my gosh, second most popular topic to Jesus. All right? So, <laughs> right? Yeah. To the, to the point where they're like, enough already. All right? We got it. We could write a book. All right? So, but the reason is so they're comfortable, not uncomfortable with it. Right? Because the enemy is going to want to make them uncomfortable. Here's what the enemy does. What the enemy does is he says, among Christians, you need to guard it. And in the world, they celebrate it. And what the church needs to do is guard it and celebrate it. That's what we should do. But the enemy wants to exploit all of those things and drive us in a different direction. Right? It's not the only thing he does, though. When he's not picking on marriage, sexuality within marriage, he's picking on food abstaining from certain foods. Now, in this context, it was one of two things. It was either all the dietary laws in the Old Testament, or it was just kind of a radical vegetarianism or veganism that had stepped into the church. And we might look at that and say, man, does that really happen today? Duh. (laughs) Holy cow, you want to talk about crazy? Man, people, especially in the Northwest, food, diets, MSG, gluten right i mean like like, i mean i'm not i'm not trying to pick on anybody here i promise but it's like processed is a four-letter word on a box to us people around here sometimes like like it's processed (gasps) you put that in your body it's the temple of the holy spirit yeah like you know or people are like twinkies are wrong twinkies aren't wrong because they're a snack food twinkies are wrong because they changed the recipe on us right (laughs) Have you noticed? I'm not buying that ever again. Not because it's bad for me. It's disgusting now, right? That's the problem. So, and so, man, th- this gets in there, right? Where we start to kind of look at other people. Look what they eat. Oh, did you? I saw what was in her shopping cart at Safeway, right? Like, <laughs> right? No, it's, it's just true. If you don't say it, you are thinking it every once in a while. You know what I mean? Like, wow. And here's my thing. If you want to eat cheese from a can, feel free. All right? <laughs> if you want just high fructose corn syrup crackers to eat that cheese on, feel free. All right? Don't give in to the food Pharisees. You don't need to do that. Right? That's what they are. All right. So... Don't need to give in to that. But what you do want to do is always be sensitive to what God wants you to do. And so Paul writes this, and, and he says, man, um, you got to watch out for that kind of legalism. For them, it, it had broad implications. It wasn't just health and diet. It was about spirituality and faith and religion and all of that. But Paul says, this too is demonic. The idea of legalism, the idea of applying rules to others that the Bible never applies, that's legalism, and that is demonic. And why is it so demonic? Well, again, because what it creates is this self-righteousness, this self-sufficiency, this propensity to judge others when they don't live up to the rules that I create for them. And what happens then is then uh, there's this buildup of everybody's trying to outdo everybody else in these standards of godliness that God never set. And Satan loves that because pretty soon we're looking at each other, judging one another. We're looking down on one another and try to, instead of trying to lift one another up. 
And inevitably, you cannot stay perched on that pillar forever. And that's what he waits for. Because then you topple down. And all your legalist friends that came up with you, they look down on you as you fall. And you become defined by your sin, even though it's probably just nothing more than you're defined by legalistic standards that God never enacted. And then from that, you tumble down even further into guilt, into shame, and maybe even to just saying, you know what, it's not even worth it, I'm done. It's amazing how many people I meet who say, I don't dig Christianity and I don't want to go to church because I was held a legalistic standard that turned me off. I always failed, so why even try? It's demonic. Satan loves it. It's totally demonic. I thought about this just this week. There were some uh, families. I, the first church I, I was a lead pastor in um, was, was one of those churches that was a small church made up of like seven families. All right? What I mean by that is each family had like 15 people. All right? Um, no, it was like really like, you know, like the Duggars. It was like that. All right? And so uh, it, it was real uniform, you know? Uh, that's the so-and-sos, and they have 13 kids. And that's the so-and-sos, and they have 14. Huh, beating you by one. Uh, those are you know, like, and, and just these big families. And in those big families, there was a series of rules, right, that kind of swamped this little church. The rules were simple, such as, we don't do birth control here. Because don't you want to trust God? Like, what am I supposed to say to that? No, I don't trust God. All right, prophylactics. You know what I mean? Like, Honestly, what are you supposed to say to it? It's just this, it was just, we have real faith. You don't, because we, we trust God with how many kids we have. It was also homeschooling only, right? So no birth control, homeschooling only because you're called to raise your kids, not the public satanic school system, right? So there was that. And you dressed a certain way. The girls, denim. The boys, khaki polos, right? It was just the rules, and there was all these rules that surrounded these families. And so then the younger families that were coming in, because we were a younger family, we had just had honor uh, when we came to this church. We were one of the younger families, and there was all this pressure. Are you going to use birth control, or are you going to go Satan's way? Um, are you, are, are, are you going to homeschool, or are you going to send your kids to hell? You know, like, like it, it was like really kind of like that. You know, you know what I mean? And you just felt this pressure. And some of those younger families, they just became weighed down, right, by, by those big families. You know, oh, yeah, I guess we shouldn't. And there were some families that stopped ha using birth control because they just felt guilted and shamed. And then the next thing you know, they're frazzled because they're starting to have all these babies and they're not built for big family maybe like these other big families think they are. right? And so it created all this just hardship within the church. Now, here's the thing about that. Um, keep building the legalism. Keep building the legalism. Keep getting bigger. Keep having these standards, and eventually you fall. Those big families, the two biggest instigators of all of that in the church, the two matriarchs of that vision, uh, just in the last year, both toppled. After all of these years, and all of this pressure, and all of this ideology, and all of this indoctrination, and literally hundreds of women affected by this indoctrination, one of them said, I'm done. I'm just going to go play the field. I look pretty good now. Left her husband, left her kids. She's just playing the field with all kinds of guys. Because again, she finally just couldn't sustain the weight. Because all of that still was clouding her soul and spirit. She was self-righteous. She was not dependent on Christ. She was just self-righteous. The other mom, 
left her husband and her family for another woman. Right? They led Bible studies. They were very involved in church. They taught all the homeschool co-ops. They did all of the lectures and seminars and workshops. And they toppled out. Why? Because what they were pushing in the end was not godly. It was demonic. It was demonic. Now, I have no problem if your conviction is your conviction, but you recognize that the Bible doesn't speak to that, and so you can't start applying it to everybody. But when you decide you can apply it to everyone because it applies to you, that's demonic. When you make them feel shame or guilt or sinful, or you tell them they need to repent unless they fulfill a standard that you created, that's demonic. So Paul lovingly warns Timothy. He says, man, don't let that happen. Don't let the extremes happen in your church. Don't succumb to Satan's schemes, subtraction or addition. He says, because there are things, going in later to verse 3, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. I want you to notice right there, it does not say everything is good. Notice it says, everything that God has made is good. All right? What that means, I want to kind of simplify this because sometimes people are like, you know, so every, everything is good. Like I got a buddy of mine who's like, dude, I smoke pot because Jesus made pot. I'm like, he made poop too. You're not smoking it. Um, <laughs> And, right, so you can't just decide if it exists, I can do it, right? When, when it says here that everything created by God is good, what it's saying there is everything he made as far as what he made, why he made it, and how we're instructed to use it. So it's not just like, hey, we can split the atom so I can nuke a country. You know, I mean, it's not, it's not like that. Right? God gave a why, a what, and a how, and that governs how we interact with his creation. So if you came over to my house today and I said, hey, make yourself at home. So you said, great. And you sold all my furniture and painted the walls and evicted me. I'd be like, whoa, not the intent. Right? Like there is a why, what, and how, and it's not just however we want to make it. And so what we need to know here is what governs what God has created. And Paul says there's a couple of different ways to understand that. The first you find out through the Word of God, right? For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the Word of God. Right? So we read the Bible and we go, all right, how can I interact with God's creation? What can I use? What can I not use? What does that mean? We use the Word of God to direct that. And so we can look at all of creation, because again, God made creation good, and God said, man, I want you to take advantage of it, I want you to use it, I want you to enjoy it, but within its proper parameters... I think about like the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the great encouragements there, it says, eat good food, drink good wine, enjoy the wife of your youth, right? Three topics, eat good food, right? Hey, that's permissible by the word of God. That is considered a holy activity. It can be a worshipful thing to eat good food. Gluttony, not good. You can take a good thing and make it a bad thing when you leave its original thing. Right? So eat good food. Drink good wine. Some people are like, no, wine's sinful. You know, the Bible uses wine for worship. It uses wine for celebration. Jesus made a wine. Jesus drank wine. Wine's not bad. Drunk, bad. Eat good food. Drink good wine. Just don't get drunk. Don't be gluttonous. 
enjoy the wife of your youth. That's a euphemism for sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. Right? That's good. That's holy. The marriage bed is honorable. All of those things are good. God's word gives instruction to that. To do that with the same gender, to do that with somebody other than your spouse, not good. Right? So God, what he's made, that he's declared to be good, we can do. Same with other things, money or uh, hobby or activity or whatever else. God's word defines how we use this creation and that it's good. So it's totally fine to do that, right? But the things that God says to avoid, we avoid. God says this kind of abuse is wrong, we don't do that kind of abuse. If God says drunkenness is wrong, we don't want to be drunk. If God says this kind of sexual activity is wrong, we don't want to engage in sexual activity. If God says greed is wrong, we don't want to give in to using money in greedy ways, right? It's that simple. So let God's word define it. Now, what about something where God doesn't say no or God doesn't say yes? Prayer. We call those gray issues. So he said, it's made holy by the word of God, which is kind of this objective truth or prayer and that's the subjective issue that's the gray issue right where we go the bible doesn't give me direction one way or another so i'm going to go to god and say am i free to do this is my conscience free to do this the crazy thing is that some people have a conscience that's free to do certain things and some people don't right some people go you know what no matter what i just find alcohol to be problematic i I just find it wrong for me that's your conscience you you need to live by that conscience you need to live by that conscience. There's going to be others that feel like they, the Bible says it's acceptable for me to enjoy the fruit of the vine, just not be drunk. Their conscience is free. That's a gray area. There's going to be some who say we celebrate the holidays, but we don't celebrate the characters of the holidays because we want to make it all about Jesus. And there's going to be others that say we make it all about Jesus, but we have fun with the characters too. That's a conscience issue that you pray about as a family. I think the key is actually pray about it. Don't just ponder it. We actually go to God and say, God, what do you want for me on these gray areas? What should I do and not do? Where's the thresholds that you've built into me? Right? But just asking those questions, pondering those issues, letting that happen. Dress style is another one. Everybody can have opinions on dress styles. Uh, Let the Holy Spirit guide you. Pray. Say, God, what, what, what is it I'm free to and not to? Is it about me or is it about you or what is it? I mean, that's, it's still the prayer issue. So we let the objective Bible govern, we let the subjective conscience of prayer govern, but all of it should be received with what? Thanksgiving. C.K. Chesterton wrote about this. He said, um, you do well to um, say grace before dinner. He says, but I love to say grace before I read a book, before I go on a hike. I love to say grace before I go out with my wife. I love to say grace when I spend time with kids. I love to say grace when I'm just out enjoying nature. He, he just saw this thing that everything that we enjoy, we should enjoy with thanksgiving toward God. It shouldn't just be that, you know what, when I go out on this field and I kick the ball or when I go and I hang out with friends that it's just an activity, it's something to be received with thanksgiving from God. Right? So he says, man, enjoy, because here's the thing about the Christian life. Christianity is not restriction. Christianity is pleasure. It's pleasure. Now, it's not unbridled pleasure it's biblically informed spirit driven pleasure and when we really enjoy the pleasures of god in the context of god that is richer pleasure than we violate the design of god in the in the hunt or search of pleasure right people that want the most pleasure from life are what the hedonist happiest people you ever met right 
Nope. Hedonists are usually train wrecks down the road. Why? Because they keep trying to get more pleasure and more pleasure in ways that you can't get pleasure. God gave us the perfect equilibrium on pleasure. Here's what I permit. Here's what I forbid. Here's how I guide in the conscience. You play by those rules, you're going to do well. You're going to have the most pleasure in life. You violate those to a bunch of restriction. You violate those to a bunch of pleasure-seeking without parameters. Train wrecks, both sides. So, man, this matters. Doctrine counts. He then goes on. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the word of faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Right? I, I, what I dig about this, it's, it just, he brings it back to the word of faith, which is the gospel, the good doctrine, which is the implications of the gospel. And all of it, what he's saying is, you know what? The key to our lives is being rooted in the fact that Jesus has done this for us so that we don't need to do anything to earn his love. But being in his love, we now want to obey him because we dig him. Keep that in your thinking, he says. No matter what you do, keep that in your thinking. Keep sharing that. Keep putting that before the brothers because we are all going to be prone to this extreme or that extreme. Center is hard to keep. It's hard to keep, but he says, man, keep reminding, keep pushing. Don't give in. Don't give in. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. There's a lot of silly myths. We have entire networks for silly myths. We have entire books and magazines and sections of the bookstore on Amazon for silly myths that are simply irreverent. He says, don't give into that. He says, rather, train yourself for godliness. Train. That word in its classical use about 200 years before the Bible period, that word literally meant to exercise naked. Which you're like, no thank you. Um, that's not good naked, according to Seinfeld. All right, so it was rolling, except for the young people are like, I don't get it. All right, so um, no, but, but here's what that entailed. It meant strip off all your entanglements. Don't let anything hang you up from this kind of training. So in this case, he says, don't get hung up on anything when it comes to training for godliness. He says, that's the thing we should focus on. That's the thing we should care about, Right? True godliness, that's what matters. He says, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every single way. I mean, think about how fixated we are as a culture on physical exercise. How fixated we are on sport and sporting events and activity and being out and doing things. We spend billions of dollars, we spend millions of hours at thousands of establishments and give all sorts of energy to this. All sorts of energy. Tons of hours of practice, all these kinds of things. Even the minimum encouragement every week is what? Three days, 30 minutes. That's the minimum. If you're under that, slacker. All right, so myself included. All right, so except up here, this is my hour of uh, physical workout. Um, We give a lot to this. And here's what Paul says. He doesn't say that, you know what? That's a bad use of your time. He doesn't say that. He says it's of some value, right? It is good for our body. It is good for our mind. It's good for our soul. It's good to be active. I don't want to take that away. It's totally important. He says it's of some value. He says, but training for godliness is of value in every way. In every way. And honestly, I looked at that and I kept looking at it this week and I go, I I wished we believed that. 
Here's the most confronting thing I will say all morning. I wished we believed that. Because I honestly just tallied up and I go, all right, how much do we give to uh, academics? How much do we give to athletics? How much do we give to occupation training-wise? And then how much do we give to godliness? I mean, I, 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 was just, I was personally profoundly confronted by that. I mean, we brag about grades, we brag about sports, we brag about accomplishments at work. Um, godliness just does not get the priority. The things that are of little value, they get a lot of priority. The things of greatest value, value in every way, gets less. And I looked at this passage for a long time, and I realized why that's the case. Because he says, as it holds the promise for the present life and also the life to come. And as I really thought about this and really prayed about it and found myself troubled by it, I realized at least my challenge, and I think our challenge at times, the deeper problem that we hold is, you know, we believe in heaven, but we just don't believe in the afterlife. In other words, what we all believe is that one day we all die and we're going to end up in this giant church and we're all sitting in chairs equally. What we don't believe is that there's a life better, more robust, more profound than this life that we live based on how we lived this life. In other words, we go, yeah, I'm going to heaven. I'm good with that. The whole idea that I will have an afterlife, an actual life I live after this one that is predicated on my obedience and my focus and my passion and my love and my hunger of God in this life and saying no to this world and yes to the kingdom, that we just don't believe. Because if we did, we would live different. What we believe is that we're all going to the big church in the sky. We don't believe that we're going to have an entire life to live in that world that is just more diverse and more profound than anything we experience in this life. So much so that later in 2014, we're going to do a whole series just on eternity. Just on heaven and eternity. It's like a seven-week series. It's called Episode 7, in tribute to Star Wars Episode 7. All right, so... um, Because I am a geek. All right, so it's going to be awesome. All right, so we got to believe in the life to come. That's why he says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this end, we toil and strive. We're to toil, we're to strive, we're to seek, right? Goodness, godliness at all costs. Why do we do this? Because we have our hope set of the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. That's our hope. Raises aren't our hope. Change isn't our hope. People aren't our hope. Achievement isn't our hope. Education isn't our hope. He is our hope. He is our hope. That's why Paul tells Timothy, command and teach these things. Timothy is this young, timid pastor. Here's what he doesn't want to do. He doesn't want to get up there and tell half the people, hey, start obeying the Bible and tell the other half of the people, hey, stop being legalists. Hey, you that sleeping with people you're not married to, you need to marry the person that doesn't want to be married. He doesn't, you know... He's got to pull them all together under truth. He doesn't want to do that necessarily. That's why Paul has to say, command and teach. The biggest challenge we as pastors have is we want you to like us. We want you to like us. We don't like to get up here and say, hey, by the way, we don't believe this. Hey, by the way, where's your priorities on godliness? Timothy wanted to be liked. Paul says, you're not called to be liked. You're called to be faithful. So commanded to teach these things. He says, Let one, that no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. Those are five hard things. Speech, oh my gosh, nothing gets me more in trouble than my speech. That's hard, man. Ellen, when we, you think I'm bad now? I'm really good now. Um, 
like Ellen, when we were younger, she's like, you got to chew stuff up before you spit it out. You know, on Sundays, most of my humor isn't planned and it gets me in trouble more often than not. You know, like Ellen's like, why did you say that? I'm like, I didn't know I was going to until it came out, you know, and so it's just part of the tragedy. All right. But I need to be an example in speech, in life, at the store, at the gym, at work, at school, driving, driving, be an example in life, in love, show that we care, family, friends, critics, enemies, in faith that we really believe it and we live it because we believe it. And in purity, that means follow through in my head, my heart, my hands. That's what it means. Right. Let no one despise you. Be an example. And then he wraps up real quick. He says, until I come, verse 13. Devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Express the truth. Exhort the truth. Explain the truth. That's what you're supposed to do. He says, do not neglect the gift you have, which is given by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. It can't just be our resolve, our intellect that drives us through. It needs to be our gifting. He says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that they may see your progress. Again, example. Put your all into it. We are all called to be examples to one another. So we throw our fullness into these things. And then he sticks the landing, reminding what is so critical. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in these, for by doing so, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. He says, focus on your how, which is your life, by focusing on your why which is your doctrine. That makes us good examples. Listen, what the world doesn't need is more smart people or wealthy people or famous people or pithy people or creative people or wealthy people that uh, can be philanthropic. What the world needs most of all is godly people. It needs godly people. Godly people that can do all those other things, but truly godly people. That is our example. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your wisdom. I thank you for your hard lessons taught to us. I pray that you are first in all. I pray that we are an example to all. I pray that you receive our best in everything we do. We love you so much in your awesome name. Amen.